This is episode number 175 with Matt Bodner. Success 101 Podcast. This is your host, Jared Warren. At each episode, my goal is to bring you a new concept or idea to help you maximize your full potential. Thanks for joining me here today. Now let's kick things off. What's up? What's up? Welcome back, everybody, to the Success 101 Podcast. I am so excited about the week my team and I are having here and hope your week is rocking along just as well. We are just slaying it, and so many of you guys that are commenting in are doing just the same. I love hearing your comments. I love how you guys are thriving all across the spectrums of your professions, your trade, and also on your pursuit toward peak performance. We've got an awesome show for you guys here today, but I first want to mention that my book, From Success to Significance, my team still has that for just the shipping cost for those of you guys here in the U.S., So many of you guys have commented in about how this book is changing your year, how you're working through the six vision building exercises, the five components for creating your strategy, not only to make this year awesome, but to get your mindset around what it takes to stick to proper goal setting, vision planning, and creating your mind for the future that you guys want to have. I love the way this thing turned out just like a workbook and can't wait for more of you guys to get your hands on it. My team's made it super easy. If you want it for just the shipping cost, Head to success101podcast.com forward slash the dash book and in the checkout, put promo code success101. We'll get a copy right out to you guys. If you're not in the United States, no worries. We've got you covered as well. You can go to success101podcast.com forward slash the dash book, same website address, and pick up the ebook reader for about the same cost. I look forward to you guys writing in on how this book is changing your life, and it's been a super awesome ride to journey along with so many of you who are going through it. And I also want to mention to you guys Connor Young, who I had on the podcast a few episodes ago, and his amazing meal replacement drink called Ample Meal. For those of you who heard that podcast, you already know about the incredible goodness that this meal replacement drink contains. But if you haven't heard that episode, do yourself a favor, go check it out. For anyone out there striving for peak performance, you've got to hear about this thing. And as you guys know, I test and test and even further test sometimes everything that comes in front of my face. And I wouldn't promote or endorse anything that I didn't believe in. This drink has an incredible design of healthy fats from coconut, macadamia nut, chia seeds, sunflower. That provides a ton of MCTs, omega-3 acids. It also has quality proteins branch-chain amino acids, grass-fed collagen. This is going to support your joint health, your bones. It's got clean carbohydrates. We want to be really careful on a high-fat, low-carb diet, what carbohydrates we introduce. But these carbohydrates are designed with a low glycemic impact. If you're not sure exactly what that means, again, go over there and check out the episode. I think you're going to love what you hear. It has probiotics of incredibly sourced ingredients. It has fiber and prebiotics plant-based micronutrients, and then a ton of other ingredients to help you guys, not only from a brain standpoint, but a body standpoint, rock through the day with energy and nutrition. If you would like 15% off of your order, and who wouldn't, head over to success101podcast.com forward slash ample, A-M-P-L-E, and in the checkout section, enter success101 to grab your 15% off. Again, that's success101podcast.com forward slash ample, and snag yours today. You can get a 400-calorie bottle, a 600-calorie bottle, and all the goodness in between. So go grab your order with the discount. Let me know what you guys think about Ample. It's an awesome drink. Thanks so much, Connor Young, for putting this together. There's nothing like it out there. All right, guys, I'm being tasked with this again. My team is on me all the time about ratings and reviews because, frankly, I just don't talk about it enough. But, you know, I guess I should. When you really dive into how Apple values the podcasts that are out there today, The only way they know how to feature certain podcasts or move them up on the list of rankings is to look at the reviews. So I'd be greatly appreciative if we can get this message out to more people about the show. And if you're enjoying it, head over to iTunes, give it a five-star rating and a review. That's going to help get the word to more people out about this show. We're in 120 countries now, and it just keeps growing, and I have you to thank for that. So go leave a review if you haven't already. Let's get the word out to more people. Now, on to our awesome episode today with my good friend Matt Bodner. 
Matt has done a ton of stuff in his young life, including being named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. Not a small feat by any means. He's also the creator and host of The Science of Success. That's a top-ranked podcast on iTunes, which really gets me excited because of what it focuses on. It's focused on improving decision-making, understanding psychology, insights on how the brain works toward peak performance, much like this show. Matt's also a partner at an investment firm who invests in farm and restaurants and production facilities, as well as other food investments. We're going to talk through a ton today, as you'll hear, including the books Matt thinks you should read for empowerment if you're in a corporate space and you want to create your own path toward business and being an entrepreneur. We'll also discuss why he firmly believes you truly are the sum of the five people you associate yourself with and why we really need to camp out on that phrase and stop passing it by to really understand what it means for our own life and even reevaluate it from time to time. We'll hear what Matt's working on toward the future when it comes to success and his own accomplishments and also the rituals toward that success and what he does to keep himself on point and driving forward toward his goals each day. Matt's got an awesome story and I can't wait to get it out to you guys and why I knew I had to have him here on the show. So without any further delay, let's cut right to my conversation with my good friend, Matt Bodner. Hey guys, welcome back to the Success 101 podcast. Matt Bodner, how are you doing out there today? I'm doing great, Jared. Thanks for having me on today. It's an honor to be here and I'm excited to uh, have a great conversation. Man, I am as well. And I love it whenever I get guys on that have achieved much at a very young age in their life and just can't wait to see what you're going to do on your future career path after all you've accomplished now. Based on what I know about you and the short time we've talked together, I think it would be super helpful for our listeners to dig into just a little bit of your career path and your success path so far. I really do two things fundamentally right now. I'm a partner at an investment firm called Fresh Hospitality, which is an investment vehicle that invests kind of across the food world. So we invest in everything from farms, to restaurants, to production facilities that are all kind of food associated. We also do a lot of ancillary investments related to food, things like food technology, agriculture, commercial real estate, kind of in and around that world. Uh, I'm also the creator and the host of a podcast called The Science of Success, which is all about kind of data-backed, research-driven strategies for self-improvement and improving yourself. And there's, there's sort of a common thread that binds those two things together, even though they seem somewhat disparate. But how did I get down that path and how did I get that journey? Actually, I'd say the thing that really kind of started out more than anything and set me on what I would consider maybe a different trajectory than my life would have gone on was uh, policy debate. I was a debater in high school. And to me, debate is one of the most impactful activities in my life. And I think it's one of the most impactful activities that anybody could participate in. It teaches you a tremendous amount about how to think, how to write, how to critically analyze something, how to pull kind of the truth claim out of a piece of research or a piece of evidence and really understand the core nugget of kind of what's going on. And it's just an incredible framework for thinking and understanding reality broadly. So that- Man, I've heard that from some other people and I really wish maybe I'd had the opportunity to dig into some of that earlier in life. But certainly for my kids, as many people have told me that in you know recent future, it's something that I definitely want to push them toward as they get a little bit older. It's awesome. It's also a lot of fun. It's a very competitive activity. And I mean, I spent the vast majority of my time in high school, you know, when you travel a lot for debate. So I was gone all the time. And I would literally sit in some of my other classes and just like work on debate stuff in the middle of class. Like I didn't care about <laughs> school at all. I had like B, B minus grades in high school, but debate was my sole focus pretty much. But then after that, so I went to uh, sort of unspectacular University of Richmond in Virginia, kind of, you know, not a school a lot of people have really heard of or heard much from. While I was there, the really thing of note that I, again, I think kind of differentiated me and helped me get on the trajectory I'm on today to some degree was I studied Mandarin Chinese and I minored in it actually. And I spent about six months living in China when I was in junior in college. And during that time, I worked for, a, I kind of interned at a, a Chinese import export consulting company. And so I think that, you know, again, sort of built a differentiated resume and, and kind of experience set that helped me out of school land a job at Goldman Sachs. And so I worked at Goldman in New York on the interest rate derivatives desks for a number of years. And finally, when I was doing that, so my brother and my father had been in the restaurant business and they had been kind of doing a few things in that space and invested in a couple of different restaurants and they'd done some commercial real estate development. And when I was in New York, I was kind of, you know, it kind of piqued my interest to see what they were up to. And I invested in a couple of their transactions and would kind of, you know, whenever I'd come home for Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever, I'd, I'd check out sort of what they were getting into and be like, oh, this is pretty cool. Like, this is really interesting. And 
they were kind of lobbying me to come back and get involved in the family business and, you know, help them with what they were doing and put it together sort of a more formal structure and entity and process around all the things they were doing in the food world. Eventually, sort of a combination of factors came together. One of them was one of the kind of watershed moments for me was reading the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, which, oh, great book. which really transformed the way that I thought about freedom and my life and kind of the trajectory that my life was on and like what I wanted to do with myself and with my time. And thinking a lot about creating wealth and building something and realizing that despite the fact that you might have sort of a high base salary at a job someplace like Wall Street, you know, it's really fundamentally kind of a similar, it's just kind of a corporate job. And it's not something where you can build real equity and ownership in something and build, build tremendous kind of wealth over time. There's a sort of a steady, predictable wealth curve. But if you really want an exponential kind of arcing curve, you need to have more control of your destiny than the corporate structure or something like that would allow you to have. And Matt, how old were you at that time when you were dad and brother were kind of trying to coax you back into the, you know, the family business and all of that? And you were working up in New York, like early 20s, like 21 through 24, something like that. Just right off the college campus, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So out of undergrad, I went up to New York and and I was working there for a couple of years. And yeah, so eventually I kind of made the leap and got involved with them. And they had just started up the company Fresh Hospitality, which I told you now is kind of where I'm a partner. You know, we hit the ground running and started investing in all kinds of different things. And we've grown the company tremendously. The portfolio today within the restaurant bucket, just to give you some context, we have about 18 different restaurant brands that we've invested in, comprising about 160 locations and doing about $250 million in annual sales just in our sort of restaurant portfolio. We've also got investments in farming, commercial real estate, and some other spaces as well. But it's been a fascinating ride, and I can go more and tell you more about that, but that's sort of roughly my background. Yeah, no, I definitely want to dive into that. Let's take a couple of steps back here, if you don't mind. I would say your path is a little bit, you know, not average, for lack of better words there. You grow up where you did and go to school in Richmond to study Mandarin, which I'm sure there's not a lot of people doing that ride. And then you get out of school, you go up to Goldman Sachs. Why did you not pursue the family-owned business. I mean, you obviously mentioned it there. You said, hey, it's still, you know, working at Goldman's really kind of a corporate job. So you had that kind of that gut feeling already that it wasn't going to create for you what you thought or what maybe some people think it is out there. Why did you not pursue going and working for the family business right out of school? Was it just trying something new and wanting to get your hands dirty on something else or just get some experience? What was the main reason? Yeah, I think it was a combination of all those things. You know, it's funny. And even I think until probably after I was in New York, I felt like my life, I didn't really have a lot of clarity or, or sort of destination to what I was doing with most of the things I did in life. And I would say that my choice of college was relatively arbitrary, didn't really have any meaningful decision criteria. And even to some degree, the choice to work on Wall Street was kind of throwing a dart in the wind and just saying, you know, as a junior or sophomore in college, like, what's the coolest sounding thing that I can do? And I kind of said, oh, that Wall Street, that's what everybody wants to do. I'll see if I can go do that. And it wasn't until really once I got to Goldman, I started reading a lot more in, you know, kind of books like for our work week, books like Mindset by Carol Dweck, started getting a oh, yeah. lot of clarity about what I wanted in life and realizing that most people are sort of drifting through their lives, living a life of kind of mediocrity, for lack of a better term. And the reality is that once you wake up to this, and I think for our work week is a great book to kind of open your eyes to this. The world is malleable. Everything can be changed. And, you know, as Steve Jobs put it, like everything around you has been made by another human being. And so it was an idea in someone's head at some point, And now it's physically created in the world. And once you wake up to the fact that you don't have to continue to sort of drift down any given path, you can actually create your own destiny in a very, very meaningful way. That like realization shifted the way that I perceived my own life and reality and everything else. And that's when I started changing the course that I was on, changing the trajectory that I was on from one of kind of a structured, uh, very kind of linear path, something like a corporate career or career on Wall Street to something that was much more free form and something where I had a lot more control over my destiny and ultimate ability to sort of shape reality around myself. That's awesome. And I've read that book. It's been a while. I probably need to pick it back up and, you know, refresh again with some of the ideas in there. But I felt the same way. I felt like, you know, you read that book and you're so empowered to just go and create things with obviously the help of others so that you can make it a four hour work week. Right. I mean, a lot of it's about leveraging and delegation and things like that. But I think it does show you that many times we're working a lot harder than smarter. Or we're just making things way too complex. I'll put you on the hot seat here. Would you say there's another book out there for someone who might be listening in, you know, driving in this morning, listening to this podcast or whatever? 
who is in that corporate space, maybe younger, maybe older, trying to figure out a way out to do something on their own and create other things. Is there another book that you've run across that you would recommend that they should also get their hands on for just creating that path they want to go down and empower them to do so? Yeah, I mean, so I would say there's a couple books that I'd recommend checking out. One of them is obviously for our work week. And to me, for our work week is kind of the fuel behind the fire. You know, it's in the matrix when you kind of take a pill and you wake up and see everything. The four hour work week, especially because now it's I think it's like a 10 year old book at this point, is sort of dated on the actual strategies and execution of how to do that. And a lot of the things that Tim talked about in that book now are not as relevant or effective in terms of ways that you can build a life that you really want. So books that fill in on the tactical side, I would say there's a book that came out recently called Pivot by Jenny Blake, which is a great book. I actually interviewed her on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it's a fantastic book that kind of outlines the strategy for how you can leave a job or transition careers into something else and something that you want to do. And there's so many people sort of think about if you're going to kind of either whether it's become an entrepreneur or change career paths, change career trajectories. So many people think that you kind of jump off a cliff and you go all in on this thing and hope that it works out. And if it doesn't, too bad. And I think that's completely the wrong approach. The best approach is to lay as much groundwork as possible to de-risk that opportunity as much as possible and really try to minimize and make sure that whatever the next step you're taking is, it's already kind of vetted, tested. You know, there's some meat there and that there's something that you're stepping onto that's a new opportunity and you're not just stepping off of a cliff. And there's a great blog post, which I can send to you if you want to throw it in the show notes. But yeah, that'd be great. It's by Tim Ferriss, and it's just called The Myth of the Entrepreneurial Risk Taker. And it basically talks about the story of Bill Gates and some other people and demonstrates the same thing, that there's this idea that entrepreneurs sort of throw caution to the wind and go all in on something, when in reality, the best and most effective strategy is to really de-risk, work on a side project, kind of build something up until it gets to the point where it's sort of a natural decision to step out of what you're doing and step into doing that. And Pivot's a great book for kind of laying the tactical groundwork to be able to test opportunities, be able to find something, be able to step into doing that. Yeah, you know, I've interviewed so many people here on this podcast that are of the entrepreneurial spirit that have gone out and created their own things. And I would say for the most part, if you just look at it logically, most people would say that what you said is absolutely correct. I would think the majority of people would say, don't just jump all in, don't just quit something that's very foolish, you know, whatever. I think the people that speak against that, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think the people that speak against that, though, are people that are saying, if you wait until this new opportunity is created to take a lot of the risk out of it, as you just mentioned, I'm paraphrasing there for what you said, and you get it set up to where you can almost pivot or transition into it, their fear many times is that people, for the most part, just aren't going to take any action because they're going to keep waiting for that new opportunity to get set up just right to where almost all the risk is gone and they wake up five years later and they're still stuck down the same path that they were. How would you speak to that based on what you just mentioned? I think that's a great point. And there's a sort of a subtle distinction, but it's a very critical one. And that's, and this is actually another lesson from for our work week, which is the timing is never right to do anything, right? The the best time to start is right now. And if you put it off until, you know, X, Y, Z happens to do something, you're never going to do it. And the best time is always to just rip off the bandaid and make it happen immediately. And That doesn't mean necessarily rip off the bandaid and quit your job immediately. But what it does mean is start doing things immediately. Don't say, I'm going to wait, you know, a couple months. I'm going to wait until there's a really good, there's a really, really good story. It's kind of like a one minute version of this from Zig Ziglar back in the day. And uh, I forget which one it's from, but but it's basically a story where he talks about this guy who's going to, you know, whether it's lose weight or start a business or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to start, but it's football season and you know, I got to go out of the games and everything. And like, as soon as football season's over and, you know, I'll get started. And it's like, once football season's over, well, it's, you know, it's the holidays and I got to do all this stuff at the holidays. And once the holidays are over, I'll get started. And it's, you know, once January comes around, it's like, oh, it's so cold outside. Like I can't, you know, I'm just going to wait until the weather turns nice and, and, you know, then I'll get started. And it's like springtime. So oh, the weather's so nice. I really want to enjoy it. You know, I'll wait a couple months to get started. And then it comes all the way back around, you know, and you get the, the full circle and it's like years gone by and you haven't done anything. And the same excuses are, are still holding true. And so it's I think to me, the critical distinction there is don't wait to get started. Don't wait to start doing things until the conditions are right. But at the same time, you know, try and do a lot of other things. Try and take action so that you can lay the groundwork for whatever you leap into next. And so if you're working in a job now and you're thinking about transitioning out of it, spend, you know, five, 10, 20 hours a week, whatever, however much free time you have 
to start laying that foundation, you know, get coffee with people, build relationships, start reading books about the industry or the thing you want to do, start laying like the groundwork and the foundation so that when you do make that leap, it'll be much better. And if you get to a threshold where it's been, you know, five years and you haven't made the leap, I seriously doubt that if you aren't able to make that transition in five years that you've been spending the time beforehand laying a lot of groundwork. No, I totally agree. It's, it's like with me and my financial planning practice where I always tell people whether it's this new investment you're trying to save up for and get enough capital raised for, whether it's retirement, whether it's your kid's college, whatever. At the end of the day, there's never a great perfect time. You're not going to wake up one day and go, hey, I've got all my ducks in a row. It's time to start saving these giant amounts or investing these giant amounts. There will always be things that are competing with your savings or investment dollars that you just don't even see on the horizon. You know, it's always something for some people. And if you don't just start working toward it in little clips at a time, again, you'll wake up in five years and go, hey, I'm still avoiding for, you know, whatever reason. So I think that's so helpful. Let's back up for just a second. I didn't know we were going to go down this path, but I think it's pretty fascinating that you brought it up because I feel the same way about the four hour work week, about a lot of things now. I couldn't believe it's been 10 years, but I guess it has. You know, when you mentioned that, I was like, man, is that right? Just time flies by so quickly, you know, in your own mind and people can figure out for their own selves, whatever they think has changed in it. But what do you think is not as relevant anymore in that book? Because I just know people are going to be driving around listening to this out there who have heard that or thought about reading it that might want to know, okay, before I dive in, I'd love to know what might still be relevant in 2017 and maybe what's not. Yeah. I mean, I would say if you were to pick the book up, the first ballpark, I don't have it in front of me to know the exact numbers. I said the first like 70 pages or something are really, really, really good. And that's all of the stuff of waking up kind of the mindset of what life can be, lifestyle design, all of that stuff. I would say most of the tactical strategies that he talks about in the book today are extremely outdated. Even a lot of the stuff about the methods he recommends for hiring virtual assistants, I think are somewhat dated, though there are some really good VAs out there. And I have a VA yeah, that's awesome. But I think you have to like he recommends hiring, you know, VAs from places like India, I think domestic US like native English speaking VAs are hands down the best way to go. But a lot of the stuff he talks about with AdWords arbitrage and creating info product businesses and all of that stuff that has been played out over and over and over again on the internet for the last 10 years. And yeah, most of saturated. The, yeah, most of the opportunities there are gone. Yeah, that to me is sort of the tactics of how he says to do it are less effective today because the book is so outdated and many, many people have done them since the book came out. But I think the 30,000 foot kind of perspective that he gives you is more relevant than ever. Yeah. And I've got two VAs right now, both are in the Philippines. And I just hear more and more people say that that's really where a lot of, you know, Americans especially are looking right now because of the reasons you just mentioned. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of other great places, but English speaking as kind of the main languages, which they are, is super, super helpful. I think all of that stuff is very helpful just to dig into your mind as far as what you're thinking, what has helped you, what paths you've been down that you found work and don't work. And I know you're also, you know, big delayed congrats here, but Forbes 30 under 30. I mean, that doesn't just happen overnight. How do you feel like you got into position to be able to get that with so many people vying for that out there? It's a very challenging thing to get. And I can walk you through sort of the strategy and the tactics that I used to get there. I mean, that's been something that I had had on my to do list for probably or sort of my goals list, I guess, for probably four or five years. And I've been working slowly and sort of laying the pieces and the infrastructure around trying to ultimately get that goal. The first and kind of necessary but not sufficient criteria to getting on Forbes 30 under 30 is that you have to be doing something that's relatively interesting, right? And that's something that you need to have, but it's not something that is necessarily going to get guarantee you to get on the list by any means. Right. From there, once you kind of have something of interest, right, the next thing you want to do is build up a little bit of PR, whether it's local media or industry related media. And, and that's something that I cultivated for years, building relationships with journalists, building relationships with bloggers, et cetera, to, to kind of share the story of what we were doing at Fresh and how interesting and how unique it was and get that out in front of people. So you have kind of a, to some degree, kind of a portfolio of media things that you're working on. Again, those are sort of background pieces that are necessary, but not sufficient. The actual strategy, then the thing that really shifted my perception on this is I went to a conference and talked to a guy who, and, and part of the reason I actually attended this conference is because one of the speakers was someone who had been on Forbes 30 under 30. And I went to a session after the session, I asked him like, what did you do to get on Forbes 30 under 30? And so there's a lesson just in that, which is seek out people who have done it and ask them how they did it, right? That to me is a repeatable, one of the most effective tactics that you can use in general in your life to achieve anything is seek out people who've done it and ask them how they've done it. So I sought out this guy at a conference. I asked him, how did you get on Forbes 30 under 30? And he said, 
the biggest single thing you can do is get previous winners to nominate you and even better than just nominating you get them to kind of put in a good word for you with the judges and isn't just 30 people across the entire country it's 30 people in different industry verticals you know there's everything from energy to food to finance right and so the judges within each of those categories are kind of specific to that given industry vertical and after talking to this guy i I found a couple winners in the category that i was in which was food obviously because i'm an investor in the food space and found a couple guys who previously won in that category i reached out to them kind of got to know them and eventually asked if they would be willing to nominate me you know, one of them kind of offered independent of me even asking him to put in a good word with the previous judges. And I think that was probably the biggest factor that let me sort of stand apart from everybody else. Right. And you have to be nominated to begin with. And and I also had sort of a campaign where I asked probably 20 or 30 people who are entrepreneurs, business partners, you know, CEOs of companies, friends of mine to put in nominations for me as well to try and stack the deck as much as possible kind of in that favor. But I would say the biggest single thing was finding judges in the category that I wanted to get into getting to know them and asking them if they'd be willing to nominate me and potentially, you know, put in a good word with the judges was absolutely the biggest piece of it. Man, that's great. And it just kind of reminds me of, you know, you're talking about the people around you that were able to either put in a good word for you or getting to know those people, because this is something that in the back of your mind, you really wanted to work on. I mean, it's not easy. There's probably a lot more to it than what you just mentioned as far as the work and legwork you had to put into it. But it just reminds me on several of the podcasts recently, just for whatever reason it's come up, Jim Rohn's famous quote, you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. So I want to branch off into that for a moment. But the people that are around you probably shaped, I don't know if it's your family already being in the business, but there was somebody that propelled your mind to go and think big about going to Wall Street, you know, Goldman Sachs to do the things that you did in college. What would you say about that phrase, you are the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with? And how has that really helped shape your life without giving too many super specifics? Because I know we could spend an entire podcast on that. But just what would you tell people today who hear that? It's tossed around a lot in today's society and people go, ah, yeah, that's cool. And they move on, but they never really take inventory of those five people around them. What would you say to people looking for success today and really getting on board with that and doing an inventory of people around them? I think it's totally true. And I fully embrace that quote and live my life around that principle. And constantly try to surround myself with people who are better than me, people who are pushing me, people who are achieving more than I'm achieving, and really try and surround myself with people who are a level higher than me that are doing more than I'm doing so that I can be inspired by them so that I can learn from them. And so that I can, you know, hopefully follow into some degree in their footsteps. And so I think really looking at your life and looking at the people that you're spending a lot of time with and figuring out, you know, are these people the kind of people that you want to become? And if they're not, then you should really reevaluate, you know, who you want to be spending your time with and who you want to be emulating and modeling. Yeah, great, great advice from Jim Rohn. And I find that most people and what really brought up that quote for me is you talking about the influences around you. I find that most people agree, you know, especially if they've heard that or they thought about it before that like, hey, what a great phrase. I live my I try to live my life by that. But if you really nail them down to, hey, have you really stepped back and done an inventory of the five closest people around you, maybe on a six month basis or a 12 month basis? I find that most people just aren't taking the inventory. They know who's close to them. They know who has helped them, you know, achieve things in life. But unless you're taking an inventory of that, you may have some naysayers or some people around you that just really are not helping you rise up to your maximum potential. What has been the biggest lesson learned for you? You were 22 to 24, somewhere in there you mentioned, where your family started saying, hey, come on back into our business. I'd love to know in that short amount of time, you know, over the last six years or so, what's been the biggest lesson learned that you look back on now and go, wow, man, I really wish I had known this coming right out and getting into, you know, into the workforce. I would say the biggest lesson that I've learned and something that I've spent a tremendous amount of time and energy thinking about journaling on, studying and really trying to go deep on is really the question of and the pursuit of being more high leverage. And by that, I mean, We've talked a little bit and kind of danced around this, and, and Tim Ferriss talks a lot about this in For Our Work Week too, but there's a nonlinear relationship between time and value creation. And by that, I mean, let's look at somebody like Bill Gates, for example, right? Bill Gates isn't earning, you know, 10x or 100x more than we're earning. He's earning like a million, a billion x more than us, right? And <laughs> he's not working a billion times harder. In fact, mathematically, it's impossible for him to do that because there aren't a billion times more hours in the day. He has just as much time as you do. And he has just as much time as I do. And so when you look at some of the most successful people on the planet, people like Bill Gates, people like Munger, Charlie Munger, who's one of his business partners, 
people like Ray Dalio, who's one of the most successful hedge fund managers of all time. Even looking back in time, people like John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, they echo many of the same lessons over and over again. And I've learned this lesson again and again and again in my business, which is try to be as high leverage as possible. And what do I mean by that? I think there's two fundamental ways that you can do that. One is to improve your ability to think and better understand reality. And the second is to hire people and constantly be replacing yourself. And we can go, you know, deep into either one of those or both of those if you want to. But those to me are kind of the two core lessons that I've learned. And really, it's all about if you want to achieve massive results, you have to create, you have to generate leverage in some way. And you can generate leverage by hiring people under you. You can generate leverage by getting smarter and smarter and and getting your mindset to a point where you can understand things much more clearly and much better than other people. But you have to be focused on leveraging your time, leveraging yourself and using things like the 80-20 principle to really leverage the inputs that you put in so that you can get the outputs that you want to get out. Yeah, huge advice. And I would love to know just from a guy who has been there, done that, both on the Wall Street, almost corporate salary type role, as you mentioned, and then realizing, hey, this is not going to get me where I want to go to, you know, being in the family business and really helping there. I'll ask two sets of people here, Matt. One would be college grads that are just now getting out, trying to explore their future, wanting to make the right decisions. But then also what I would just call career veterans, people that have been in a career for several years, maybe many years, and just realizing, hey, I always thought there would be something that would change. What would you say both of those people are doing, in your opinion, incorrectly today to be leaders or to make that pivot and make a change? What are they not? I mean, obviously, we could say things like they're not thinking big enough or they're not utilizing resources. But what do you observe from people today that uh, are just getting people stuck? There's so many stumbling blocks and so many ways that you can go wrong. I would say to me, one of the biggest things that I see causing people to self-sabotage and causing people to fail is that they're stuck in what psychologist and author Carol Dweck calls the fixed mindset. And I don't know if you've read the book Mindset or or talked about it on the show, but Mindset to me is one of the most, probably the most impactful book that I ever read in my entire life. And it (laughs) it just completely transformed the way that I perceived myself, the way that I perceived failure, the way that I perceived effort. And it's amazing that once you transition from having a fixed mindset to having what she calls a growth mindset, and we can go into what those mean, it's a massive shift in the results that you see in your life. You know, I had a friend recently who is very, very fixed mindset and I'd kind of given him mindset, told him about it many times and he never really kind of picked it up, never got into it. And then about six months ago, he read it and has completely transformed himself. I mean, he's literally a different person. He's looking for advice. He's seeking feedback. He's trying to get better, doing everything he can to learn and improve and grow. When I see people being held back When I see people who aren't doing what they want to do, oftentimes it's because their ego is getting in the way. And most cases, that's because they're sort of mired and stuck in the fixed mindset. Yeah. And the whole reason that I asked that was because I know that you interact with a ton of people just out there in the business world and the things that you're doing. And you did, you know, even at your time up in New York as well. And I'd assume there were probably some things that really stood out to you on just society as a whole of people that you see that really want to be successful or picking your brain on how to be successful And I want to just speak to the listeners for just a moment here. You talked about mindset. In fact, I love that book. It's one of my all-time top favorites. I have reached out to Carol Dweck a few times, Dr. Carol Dweck a few times, to try to get her on the show. And I know she is super busy, so I would love to try to land her at some point. But at the end of the day, I think someone might hear your story. I'm just trying to think, you know, in the mind of the listeners here. They may hear your story and go, okay, sharp guy, studied Mandarin, went and worked on Wall Street as an early 20-something. You know, nobody that is just average living is doing that, right? So you had to be doing some pretty exceptional things just in school to be able to even get there. Then you go and start working for your family's business, Forbes 30 under 30. I think a lot of people could hear your story, honestly. And no offense to you. I mean, congrats on all of your success. But I think a lot of people could hear your story and go, nah, sure is easy for a guy that's had that much success early in his life to think about having a growth mindset. But me, I'm different. You know, we always think we're different. We always think our circumstance is different. But you just mentioned a buddy of yours wasn't even privy to that concept. You introduced it to him, and now he's starting to think differently. And I don't know what his life path or career path has looked like, but it is a choice. It's an absolute choice. And the thing I love about that book is it really speaks to that very authoritatively where she says it's an absolute choice. You can keep making excuses, but it's all about how you think about your surroundings day in and day out that's going to help move the needle in really quantum leap ways or you're just going to stay stuck. And I would say, let's go even deeper back in my history, because I totally understand what you're saying. 
And it's hard to look at the trajectory that I've been on and say, like, how can I step into that trajectory if I haven't started? Right. But if you go all the way back, like I was a person who was listless, didn't have any sort of goals or framework for my life, didn't have anything that I wanted to do. Like, I'm going to go all the way back to some of the things that chance really put me on a trajectory of having a growth mindset and kind of ramping and achieving all this stuff early on because I was fortunate enough to stumble into some of these concepts. Before I stumbled into them, I was just as kind of drifting and unguided as anyone who hasn't been exposed to any of that stuff. Eighth grade, I would stay up until three in the morning every night playing Ultima Online. I was failing out of like some of my classes and I was actually supposed to take this history class and they were like, your grades are too low to take this class. So we're going to put you in this remedial speech class. So they put me in this remedial speech class. And the coach of that class was like, hey, have you ever thought about doing debate? You should try it out. So I tried it out and I got onto it and I really liked it and I enjoyed it and I learned a tremendous amount. So I was very fortunate to stumble completely blindly into debate as an activity. But even in high school, like I said, I had B minus grades. I didn't get into my top three or four choices for college. I got into a school that I'd sort of applied to on a whim because someone had come to visit our campus and told me about it. I barely even knew anything about it, didn't have any friends going there or anything. I just sort of stumbled into where I was going to school. You know, I've had lots and lots of failures and setbacks in my life. And I start and even when I graduated from college, I was fortunate enough to get that job. But, you know, I wasn't like I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't have any sort of clarity or perception about what life could be and what I wanted to achieve. And I was self-sabotaging tremendously, even after I had achieved some, you know, sort of things that look successful, like getting a job on Wall Street, which, you know, I don't think are that great of markers of success because there's so many other things that are important. There's so many other things you can do to achieve way more than that. And until really I read Mindset, I was, you know, and The 4-Hour Workweek, which are probably the two biggest books in shaping the way that I perceive the world and the way that I perceive reality and the way that I perceive myself. Until I read those two books, I was... I didn't really have clarity about goals. I didn't know what I wanted out of life. I didn't know how I could achieve it. And I would self-sabotage all the time to protect my ego and show people that I was cool and smart and awesome instead of actually doing things to get smarter and get better and achieve more. Yeah, it just reminds me of just, you know, the tipping point or the slide edge or the compound effect or so many great books out there that talk about these little things that either by chance happen to you, you're fortunate enough to stumble through upon them, which we can all say there's been little things in our life that we did nothing to create but we found ourselves in a fortunate position. We had the choice. Do we build on this or do we, you know, do we shy away from it? But some people out there, that may not be your path. You may have to work and seek and find and hunt and be hungry for finding whatever that thing is that's going to be that tipping point for you that's going to help you, you know, again, quantum leap and, and go boom in the same direction, but then just ultimately get to a completely different direction than you're, you know, on the path for. I don't think it just happens to everybody, or it could be a combination. We may stumble into certain things, but then there may be other things that we have to really hunt and build for, which I think is most people out there. But I find a lot of people are just using that as an excuse. I know I did for a while before I learned anything out there about self-sabotage or what I was really doing, is just always looked at everyone else that had success and was like, oh, well, here's how they're different from me, or here's why I can't do that, or here's this or that. And I'm going to tell you listeners out there, you know, my story, many other successful people, if you really dig into their past... We're no different than anybody else. It's just the fact that some things come our way and we have to make a choice to stick with it and capitalize on it. Some things we have to go hunt for. And so I think that's just really awesome, the idea of, of mindset, because we can be reminded of that so, so much. What are you seeing in the future for your path right now that you're on and you're creating as an entrepreneur, even within or outside of the family business? What's really on the horizon for you in the next you know, three to five years? Before I answer that, I do want to just reiterate what you just said, which I think if you have an understanding of compound interest, compound interest is such an incredible phenomenon. You know, Einstein called compound interest the eighth wonder of the world. And right. it's something that when you're compounding at a very early stage, it doesn't really look like anything, right? Like it just sort of looks like, okay, yeah, plodding along, whatever. You know, if you get 1% better, 1% smarter every day, then it doesn't really look like much. But five years down the road, 10 years down the road, it starts to look like these massive gains, these things, these shifts that are like, I can't ever get there because that person is so much further ahead than me. When in reality, what happened was they made a very incremental shift, you know, many years ago, and then they made another incremental shift on top of that one. And they made another incremental shift on top of that one. And those incremental shifts compounded over time to become something that looks like a massive golf when really it was just very small tweaks at the outset or very small tweaks at, at a previous point in time. But you can always go back and start making those tweaks at any point. 
Yeah, compound effect probably impacted me as much as mindset did just on that idea of, you know, 1% better every day and how that over a long period of time, it looks like nothing. Small, boring, unsexy, almost seems like it's not working sometimes, right? Because it just takes so long. But then, you know, at some point you blink and you wake up and you go, wow, X amount of time has gone by and look at where this other person is compared to where I am because I've been doing nothing. You know, it reminds me of the idea of, do you want $3 million today or do you want a penny that doubles every day for the next 30 days, right? It's like everyone wants the 3 million up front, but if you take the penny that doubles every day for the next 30 days, you've got, I could butcher it here, but it's like, what, 30 million dollars or something like that and yeah. some change yeah, it's a massive but that didn't amount. happen until the 29th day you know or something like that i can't remember exactly the analogy but it's just that idea of just compound you know the tortoise and the hare not to be too cliche there but what does the future look like for you what are you really jazzed up about and fired up about in the direction you're going and things you're going to capitalize in your business on you know i mean it's hard to forecast too far in the future because i try to stay just sort of heads down and, and executing on the projects that are in front of me today but I would well, say especially in the restaurant world, because it's such an ever changing and sometimes short lived career for a lot of people. Right. So you really got to be innovative and, and on the cusp of new things. Absolutely. That's totally true. I would say there's two things in particular that I'll just give as examples of things that are kind of of interest to me that we're kind of growing and building right now. Agriculture is an area that we have some existing investments in and something that we think there's going to be some really, really fascinating opportunities in the future. Just to give you some context around sort of ways that technology and agricultural tech are changing the way that we eat, we recently invested in a company called Square Roots, which is a vertical farming startup in Brooklyn that was founded by Elon Musk's brother. And it's a fascinating business. They basically take these shipping containers in a parking lot in Brooklyn, and they can grow 365 days a year. They're harvesting weekly and selling hyper-local, extremely fresh, or totally organic produce literally out of a parking lot in Brooklyn. And it's fascinating business model. Vertical farming as a whole is something that's crazy. There's another company that we're not affiliated with, but I find really interesting called Aero Farms, which is like a giant vertical farming warehouse where they're doing very similar stuff. But the whole kind of agricultural world, agricultural technology is something that we're very interested in. And as these exponential technologies continue to transform the world of agriculture, I think it's a space that we want to play and learn more about. Another project, I mean, I, you know, I kind of talked about it a little bit, but something that I continue to work on is more of a passion project than anything. But the podcast, my, you know, my podcast, The Science of Success, which is, you know, something that is really near and dear to me. And in many ways, we talked about the, the kind of Jim Rohn's law of the five people closest to you, you know, and I'm sure you experienced this effect to some degree, too. To me, having a podcast like that is almost a platform to level yourself up in the sense that you get to have, you know, if I were to call, you know, people like Carol Dweck or whoever else and say, hey, can you give me advice for how to improve myself for the next hour? They would say, like, what the hell's wrong with you? Of course. No, absolutely not. But <laughs> if, if I even get to them. Right. right, exactly. But if I could do that and say, will you give me advice about how to improve myself for the next hour? And I'm going to record it and put it on the Internet and call it a podcast. Suddenly, hordes of people are willing to do that. Right. And so it's been a really fascinating platform that's helped me level up a lot and meet and interact with really fascinating and interesting people, everything from neuroscience PhDs to FBI hostage negotiators. And that to me is something that I want to continue to explore and advance and grow. And I don't know, again, exactly how it's going to kind of take shape, but it's something that is very interesting to me. Yeah. And you guys out there need to go check it out. It's a great podcast. People who know me well just know I really geek out about how the brain works, especially as it works toward our success or lack thereof, you know, in self-sabotage, as we mentioned, you don't have to be a neurologist to really understand or talk to people that really know how the brain works to really understand how we need to be viewing this each day. And so those sort of things really fire me up. And that's awesome. Talking about how the brain works, I know that you're a big rituals guy. Tell me about what has created success for you and your rituals, what really didn't work for you. You know, it's always an experiment or a test to see what works for us, may not work for other people. But what are you doing right now to keep you on point? You mentioned journaling a few minutes ago. I know you've probably got a morning or evening routine. Tell us, peel back the layers a little bit into your brain and what's helping you there. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm always experimenting with new things and kind of plugging them into my ritual to see what works, what doesn't. Right now, my morning ritual is relatively straightforward. I like to meditate first thing when I get up, and I've been doing that for about three years, which again is another thing that goes back to that kind of compounding effect, right? When you start meditating, you don't really notice much of a difference, but if you do it for a period of time, you really start to see a shift in your the way you perceive things and your awareness of your own thinking and the ability to be present. And so that's something that I try to do every single morning is meditate from there, I like to... And that's a good point. I think that's why most people don't stick with it. You hear a lot of successful people talk about meditation out there, but I know more people than not who have said, yeah, I tried it, 
didn't really feel like it did a whole lot of anything. And so I just, you know, I don't really make time for it. Are you using some sort of an app or software or guide, some sort of guided structure to do that? I don't do guided meditation. I actually, I do use an app. It's called coach.me, but it's just the only functionality I use in it is it just has this daily check-in. So you just open the app and like hit a checkbox that I meditated and it'll send me an email reminder every day that if I haven't done it for some reason. And so it's just a great way to kind of keep tabs on myself and track my meditations every day. And uh, how just, long are you spending on average? I know some days it may be different than others, but 10 to 15 minutes. Okay. So you're still going shorter. That's good because that proves that it's, I mean, if you're still sticking with it three years later of doing it, that time frequency, you know, some people try to extend it longer once they get into it. But I found that that is the best from everybody I've talked to. That's kind of the best window to do it in because you get it done. You don't make excuses of it taking too long or, you know, whatever. And then you get on about your day, but so helpful. Yeah, super helpful. And, you know, once I meditate, once I get up, I kind of, the next thing I like to do is journal about something and I'll typically set out the sort of the journal topic the night before. And it doesn't have to be a long journal session. It could be, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And oftentimes when I think about journaling, I, you know, and try to do a longer session, I sort of, sort of psych myself out of doing it and then don't end up doing it at all. And so to me, just like 10, 15 minutes of journaling, and many times there's a bunch of neuroscience research around this, but if you set the problem that you want to journal on the night before, it, your subconscious will process it the entire evening. And then when you get up the next morning, you can have these kind of breakthrough moments and clarity and really new insights into something. And so it's amazing how that works. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and there's a ton of neuroscience and research behind that whole creative methodology. But I try to leverage that. I try to set out a challenge or a question or problem in many, in many cases the night before to do that. The next thing I try to do, and this is actually a tactic that I borrowed from 4-Hour Workweek, which is at Sunday, usually of a week, I'll try to set a what I call a most important task or an MIT for each day of the week. And if I just achieve that particular task that day, I sort of count that day as a win. And so it can be something that takes 15 minutes. It could be something that takes an hour or two. Uh, you know, I try to make it as simple and easy as possible. But I really think about every Sunday morning, I kind of spend two or three hours brainstorming and thinking about my goals, thinking about the projects that I'm working on and trying to figure out what are the most high leverage things I can do to move the needle the most on any given project within the next you know, five to seven days. And so I try to set out a task every day that I do each morning before I get caught up in the whirlwind of email and everything else. That's something that's proactive, that, you know, builds value, that is kind of creative, as opposed to stuff that's just reactive and responding to email, etc. The only other thing, and this is just kind of giving you the broader arc of my day from a structural standpoint, after I do those things, I typically try to set out my morning for proactive and creative work. And so that's from, you know, whenever I wake up until about noon is all kind of proactive creative time. And then from noon until let's say five or six is when I take all my meetings and do all of my, you know, team meetings and meeting people for coffee and all of that stuff. I like to dedicate myself in the morning when I'm the most productive and the most proactive to doing things that are going to create the value and really be those kind of things that are important, but not urgent. And then I'd like to spend my afternoon when I maybe have a little bit less energy doing all those kind of meetings and, and other things that usually are, you know, maybe kind of necessary, but aren't necessarily as high value. Yeah. And I think a lot of people out there are just, again, like I said, it's an experiment. You got to find out what works for you. But I think a lot of people know they're better in the mornings. They know their willpower is stronger and they know they can get stuff done and, and stay more focused. So they're actually trying to dive into a lot of the heavier tasks that they know they have to complete so the day doesn't get away from them. And I'm just learning that, you know, over the last couple of years, it's just that sounds logical, but it's so backwards. You've got to work on yourself, even though your mind and your body is saying, we got to go get all this stuff done today. You've got to stop and make time for yourself early in the morning or you're not going to start off on the right path of the day. Talk about self-sabotage. I mean, it's just going to go not the way that you plan, right, if you, if you do that. You know, you can tell people this again and again, but some people just refuse to believe it or kind of take the chance to try it. But if you spend time on things like meditation to things like not answering your email for an hour or two and really working on proactive creative stuff over a longer period of time that's going to result in more free time more productivity more stuff done even though you might be quote unquote working less like you're you're sitting there cranking out emails and you know on the phone and feeling like you're doing a lot of stuff oftentimes when you're doing that you're not being nearly as productive as somebody who's carving out proactive value creation time 
that they're spending, you know, before they get caught up in the whirlwind of reacting to the world. Yeah. And I was that guy. People told me that or I'd read that different places. And I thought, man, OK, you know, I've, these people are a lot smarter than I am. They've been more successful. I need to try this, you know, whenever I was younger in life. And just that pull of just needing, quote unquote, needing to get stuff done all the time would always pull me away. And I would just encourage you listeners out there, just start, just try it and, you know, put a time frame in your mind, do it for a certain period of time and say, look, I'm going to stick with this, even if it doesn't feel like I'm moving the needle a lot and I should be getting on to other things. And what you'll start realizing in my case was you start realizing that it is true and just kind of before your eyes, it starts unfolding that other things take care of themselves in a way different way than you thought they would. You don't have that pull anymore of just trying to self-sabotage and just jump into emails at the first part of every day or get, you know, busy stuff done and start your day off on the wrong foot. But you have to start. You have to start it in order to prove it to yourself. So, Matt, thanks so much for your time. As we get ready to wrap up the podcast here, I'd love to ask a question. And, you know, I'm tempted to ask, what are you reading now? But I don't want to know just what you're reading right now. But again, you had talked about Pivot, 4-Hour Workweek. If there's anything else people need to get their hands on that have really helped you uh, in your life mindset as well, you mentioned, what are you reading now or what should people be reading to help open their eyes up as yours has been opened in life, just even at a young age? I would say the single most impactful book for me was Mindset by Carol Dweck. I'm obviously not reading that now, but I try to reread that at least once a year or at least go through all my notes and highlights of that to really drive that point home once again. Another book that is really, really impactful and actually talks about a lot of the themes we've been discussing today is The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. Josh Waitzkin was a like a 13-time national chess champion, multiple-time world champion Tai Chi fighter, and he's a really fascinating guy. He wrote a book all about performance psychology called The Art of Learning that I highly recommend. Right now, now, I've not heard about that one. I've got to get my hands on it. Oh, it's really good. You'll enjoy it a lot. And it's fascinating because he was a world, he was a, you know, was a national champion in chess. And then he transitioned the same mindset of performance into martial arts and became a world champion martial artist as well. So it just, <laughs> nice. just goes to show you that it's about the mindset. It's about the framework. It's not just about whatever kind of given field that you're in. Right. Those are polar opposite worlds. That's interesting. But those are some really, really impactful books for me. Currently, what I'm reading, I'm reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance which is actually a book that Josh Waitzkin recommends really highly. So that book is pretty interesting. I'm kind of just getting into the meat of it. I've heard about it over and over, but I've never gotten my hands on that one either. So I guess I need to go check it out. It's interesting because it's told in a narrative style as opposed to, it's not like a nonfiction book. It's a fictional narrative that kind of explains these concepts through the story, which is really interesting. Matt, thanks so much for your time here today. Where can we steer more listeners your way to find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Jared, thanks so much for having me on. Listeners can find me and my podcast at scienceofsuccess.co. That's scienceofsuccess.co. Or if you just search for it in iTunes. And yeah, that's the easiest way to find it. Awesome. Well, we know you're a busy guy. So thanks for your time here on making us all better. And we wish you the best going forward. Thanks again. It's been an honor to be on here. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Matt. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey guys, I loved having Matt on the show today and hope you took a ton away from his message and continue to rocket this year toward peak performance and your own dreams and desires. If you guys would like to connect with my team, the easiest way to do that is by email, which is info at success101podcast.com. Or you can catch me in the world of social media on Facebook, on the Success 101 Podcast Facebook page, on Instagram, under the name at Success 101 Podcast, or even on Snapchat under Jared S. Warren. Keep commenting in on how you're striving toward areas of peak performance because I love the community that we're building here as we continue to make the Success 101 podcast great. And I'll catch you guys on the next awesome episode. Until then.